Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. There's this recurring dream I have. Maybe once a month? Sometimes more. In this dream, I'm having a full-on conversation with my son Bryson, who is largely nonverbal. Sometimes the dream takes place the moment he starts speaking in sentences, and I'm shocked at this incredible new development. Other times, we're chatting back and forth as if it's always been this way, and it's the most normal thing in the world. In some versions of the dream, Bryson's diction and grammar are perfect. In others, he speaks like a toddler struggling for the right phrases and pronunciations. Either way, it's wonderful. And I so want this dream to be real. Instead, I wake up to a bittersweet feeling. Savoring this imagined conversation with my youngest son. Wishing desperately that someday this dream will become a reality. My wife, Laura, she gets them too. Oh, I don't think I've ever had full sentences before, but I've definitely had dreams where he's talking, like communicating in one or two words. But then I wake up and I'm so sad because I was so happy in that dream. In the past, there was little hope for kids like our son, who has a severe and life-limiting disorder. But Bryson's geneticist, Dr. Ronnie Cohn, has told us about CRISPR, an amazing new technology that could allow doctors to correct errors in the human genome, to fix mutations like the one in Bryson's GRIN1 gene that keeps his brain locked at the level of a 12-month-old and prevents him from being able to walk or speak more than a handful of words. Do you think that what Ronnie's been telling us about CRISPR could mean that someday that might not be a dream? I hope so. I mean, even now with a few of the different medications he's been on, and even just as he progresses, we hear one word, like one word come out. So yesterday when he was saying, mum, 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 mum. And it's like, a huge gift to hear that and then as he gives you a hug and says it it's an even bigger gift and you know before I had kids or when I was thinking about having kids I couldn't imagine that that would be something that would make my heart sore when your child's you know older than 10 and not a baby but I guess I hope so are you ever worried about getting your hopes up too much uh 
No, because I'm realistic too. Um, I think all we have is our hope. If we give up our hope, what do we have left, right? And the hope is not about, I mean, Bryson's perfect, right? His essence is perfect, but his life is really hard. Um, he has pain and he suffers and it breaks my heart. Like every day he has pain that he can't tell us about or he gets frustrated because he can't go where he wants to go or do what he wants to do. I mean, yeah, if we could, if we could even help him a little bit on any of those things, that would feel like a success. So I have to keep my hope that there's a possibility. I'm Keith MacArthur, and this is Unlocking Bryson's Brain, a podcast about my son Bryson, his rare disease, and our family's search for a medical miracle. It becomes clear that if we're going to help Bryson, we need to understand Grin One better than his doctors do. I try to read some scientific journals, but so much goes over my head. Here's the summary line from one report. In conclusion, we found four novel GRIN1 mutations in patients showing encephalopathy with infantile onset epilepsy and hyperkinetic and stereotyped movement disorders. Why do researchers write like this? It feels like a completely different language. Laura does better at understanding the science. She works in healthcare and took some science classes at university, so she's able to grasp more of it. It takes me years before I really start to understand. Here's what I've come to learn about Bryson's brain. Even if you don't know much about DNA, you're probably familiar with the iconic double helix that looks like a pair of curled ribbons on a Christmas present. When I picture it, I can't help but think of the animated Mr. DNA character from the original Jurassic Park movie. He's a talking double helix with hands, eyes, and a mouth. What? What? Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life. A DNA strand like me is a blueprint for building a living thing. And sometimes... This blueprint, these instructions, are coded using tiny particles of four different chemical compounds, which scientists refer to using the letters G, C, A, and T. Each person's DNA contains about 6.4 billion of these letters, which are also called nucleotides or bases. If you put all those letters in a book, it would be about 10,000 times longer than War and Peace. And in Bryson's DNA, a single letter, one out of 6.4 billion letters, is wrong. This spelling mistake probably happened at conception, and as Bryson's cells began to split, it likely made its way into every cell in his body. We all have spelling mistakes in our DNA, dozens of them by some estimates, but most of them have little or no impact in how we come together. But Bryson's mutation? It falls within the GRIN1 gene, which contains the code to build a protein called GLUN1. This protein plays a critical role in how the brain learns, grows, and develops. 
It's like if there were DNA instructions to build a car, if there were an error that made a slight change in the color of the fabric in the seats, you probably wouldn't notice. But a tiny change in the ignition, the car might not start. And that's kind of what happened to Bryson's brain. There's one tiny error in his DNA, but it's in one of the worst possible places, the GRIN1 gene. In Bryson's case, it's a 1,858th letter of that gene's code that's wrong. Where there should be a G, there's an A instead. So the GLUN1 protein gets built with an incorrect ingredient, while 938 of the amino acids that assemble to create the protein are perfect, the 620th one is wrong. Instead of a glycine, a small amino acid with no electric charge, it becomes an arginine, a large amino acid that is positively charged. It's almost like mistaking baking powder with baking soda when you're baking a cake. One wrong letter, one misspelled amino acid, one broken protein, and Bryson's existence is completely changed. It's a cool April night, and Laura and I get dressed up for a rare weekend date. We're heading to Toronto's Hot Docs Film Festival to catch the documentary Human Nature. It's all about CRISPR, its potential, and its threat. Let's see Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. There's a clip in the film where Russian President Vladimir Putin is speaking to a group of students about how scientists could use CRISPR to create super beings. People could create a brilliant mathematician or a brilliant musician, Putin says. Or maybe a super soldier whose genes are edited so he feels no fear, no pain, no regret. This, Putin says, might be worse than a nuclear bomb. So that's scary. But on the other hand, the film makes the case that CRISPR has the potential to cure or even wipe out so many genetic diseases. There's a Q&A after the film with Dr. Jennifer Doudna, one of the scientists who discovered CRISPR's potential, and former CBS news anchor Dan Rather. He's the executive producer of the film. Rather covered Watergate and was actually on the scene at the Kennedy assassination. But he says CRISPR is the biggest story he's ever covered. Adam Bolt, the film's director, he's on the panel too. So right now your film is screening, right, for the third time here? Yes, yeah. yeah. Does it, does it, how does it feel to like know that it's just down the hall and people are watching it? It's, it's kind of hard to not be in there and see how people are receiving it. Yeah. I catch up with Adam a couple of days later. I figure he probably knows more about CRISPR than any non-scientist on the planet. Can you help put in perspective just how big this is? It's really big. It's really big. A lot of people compare it to something like the transistor or, you know, the, the beginnings of the internet in terms of being a technology that is, you know, is going to have ripple effects for, for decades to come in ways that we can't even begin to foresee. Would you say it's bigger than the discovery of vaccines, bigger than the discovery of nuclear energy, bigger than the internet? 
I don't know about bigger, but those are all enormous, enormous developments. And I think it's on that scale. I think it's absolutely on that scale. Yeah. So why all the hype? We'll get there. But first, what are we talking about when we talk about CRISPR? CRISPR? CRISPR. Something called CRISPR. You've probably heard of CRISPR technology. It kind of sounds like an ad for fresh vegetables. CRISPR-Cas9. It's an acronym that stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Quite a mouthful. Basically, CRISPR is a repeating set of short letter sequences found in the DNA of bacteria, such as E. coli. At first, scientists couldn't figure out why they were there. Eventually, they discovered these CRISPR patterns are actually an ingenious self-defense mechanism designed to protect bacteria from viruses. Here's how it works. When a bacterium discovers a new virus, it stores a bit of that virus's DNA in one of these letter sequences. Basically, the memory of the virus gets stored in bacterial DNA. It then gets passed along as the bacteria replicate. It's almost like a stored, most wanted poster that gets passed along from generation to generation. This wanted poster is a warning with a bullet. When the same virus is detected again, the program sends an enzyme known as Cas9 to chop up the virus so it can't replicate. It was food scientists in the dairy industry who first realized the potential of CRISPR-Cas9. By harnessing this self-defense mechanism, they could dramatically reduce the amount of spoiled yogurt or cheese. All they had to do was order batches of bacteria that were already programmed to attack harmful viruses. Then, in 2011, scientists discovered CRISPR's true potential. What if they could implant a sort of false memory into the bacteria's search-and-destroy function? What if they could replace the virus DNA in that most-wanted poster with another completely different piece of DNA? In theory, this would allow them to easily edit the DNA of any living creature, which would have profound impacts on everything from agriculture to medicine. They tried it, and it worked. CRISPR is this fundamental technology for modifying DNA, and it can be used in humans as well as any other organism on the planet that it's been tried in so far. And so, you know, the implications for human health, for the biosphere, for the environment, for all kinds of things are, are enormous. And, you know, people are, it's, it's about six years old, more or less. So we're just at the beginning of seeing what scientists and researchers and technologists want to do with it and can do with it. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.
CRISPR wasn't the first technology researchers discovered to edit DNA. Other tools had been around since the 80s. But CRISPR was dramatically better in every respect. Cheaper, faster, and far more precise. It's already being used to genetically engineer better fruits and vegetables. Experiments are underway to edit the DNA of pigs so their organs could be harvested for human transplant. And in 2019, researchers began human clinical trials to use CRISPR to cure sickle cell anemia, a hereditary disease where misshapen blood cells block arteries, damaging organs and causing intense pain for people living with the disease. So as, as a father of a son with a rare genetic condition, I sort of see just the upside, right? I see CRISPR as a potential miracle for, for my kid, but a lot of people see it as something potentially dangerous. Why? Well, I mean, some of it is, you know, the, just the fact that any technology can be used for, for good and evil. And certainly if someone wants to, to do evil with CRISPR, you know, creating some kind of bioweapon or something like that, that's, that's a possibility. Beyond the weaponization of CRISPR, there are ethical questions around how it's used to cure diseases. It's one thing to cure a disease in a single patient, but CRISPR has the potential to do much more to completely eradicate a hereditary disorder. Where people go immediately isn't so much the, the you know, deliberate evil as much as what the unexpected consequences of changing our own biology might be. There's a big distinction that we, that we lay out in the film between what's called somatic editing, gene editing. Somatic gene editing is editing the DNA of a person who's already here and, you know, modifying a particular tissue, cell type, or part of their body, a particular organ like the brain or the blood or the liver to cure a disease. Um, then there's something called germline editing, which is editing future generations, editing embryos, editing sperm or egg cells. And those changes would get passed down to future generations forever. And that's where the implications become much bigger than just saving one life or treating one person. You know, it, it opens the possibility of really, in the long term, changing the direction of human evolution. If CRISPR could be used to help Bryson, that would only change his own DNA, so no downstream effects on the germline. But in late 2018... Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. Chinese researcher Hei John Kui revealed that he had used CRISPR on healthy embryos to create babies born with resistance to HIV. Which sounds good, but scientists around the world condemned the research. It crosses a new frontier in medicine and ethics. Leaders in the field of gene editing have collectively agreed it's too early to implant edited embryos in humans because of the risks. Not only did it violate standard ethical principles around informed consent and unreasonable risk-benefit assessment, the scientific world reacted with shock and disdain. It crossed the line 
into germline editing. And according to practically every expert on medical ethics, should never have been done in the first place. Which means that if the experiment has unintended consequences, those would be passed along for generations. And given the history of gene therapy trials, unintended consequences wouldn't exactly come as a surprise. Good morning and welcome to today's hearing on what are truly critical issues regarding the subject of patient safety in gene therapy clinical trials. The events of the past few months involving gene therapy research... It's the year 2000, February the 2nd, in the Capitol building. Paul Gelsinger has flown from his home in Arizona to Washington to talk to the Senate Health Committee about his son, Jesse. Thank you, Senator Friss, and thank you, members of this panel, for allowing me to contribute to this hearing today. In most respects, Jesse was a typical teenager. He loved motorcycles and wrestling and had a bit of a rebellious streak. Jesse also had OTC, a rare genetic disorder that caused ammonia to build up to toxic levels in his blood. Most patients with Jesse's disease, they died in childhood. But Jesse's symptoms were less severe than for most people with the disorder. Through a meticulous diet that involved weighing every bite of food and by taking a regimen of 32 pills a day, Jesse was able to keep the ammonia in his blood to safe levels. When Jesse was 18, he heard about a clinical trial for a potential gene therapy treatment. Jesse didn't need it. He was doing so well on the diet and the drugs that the experimental treatment wouldn't benefit him. But he was told his participation could help save the lives of hundreds of babies at risk of dying from the disease. With that knowledge, there was no way we were not going to participate in this clinical trial. I mean, this was for the benefit of other human beings. Uh, Looked safe, was presented as safe. Um, and it was going to benefit everybody. Uh, I encouraged my son to do this. He relied on my insight. We talked it over. He said, sure, Dad. He had trusted me. I trusted them. And I wasn't given all the information. Some of the information I was given was not true. The procedure involved injecting healthy OTC genes into Jesse's liver. And the way researchers described it, a simple procedure with little risk, Jesse felt comfortable traveling to Philadelphia all on his own for the procedure. He was told the worst side effect would be flu-like symptoms. But instead of lowering the ammonia in Jesse's blood, it skyrocketed to 10 times the normal level. Jesse died four days later. I had no idea there was no success in gene therapy before my son's participation in this. Nobody relayed that information to me. I was under the impression this worked, that this was a field that was progressing. I found out it was an experiment. We, you know, informed, you know, we gave consent, but in no way was it informed. Jesse hadn't been told about the severity of previous patients' side effects, or that two lab monkeys had been killed during animal trials. And researchers had not followed through on a promise to the FDA to tighten up the study's eligibility criteria. 
Jesse's death also had profound consequences on the state of gene therapy research. Funding for research and trials dried up almost overnight. Here's Bryson's geneticist, Dr. Ronnie Cohn. That incident paralyzed the field for almost 20 years. So now it's all kind of coming back and there have been a number of different gene therapies. Some are about to get FDA approval. A couple already have FDA approval. So I think the field of gene therapy is just coming alive again. Can you kind of put it in perspective? Like how big do you think that CRISPR is as a development in medicine? So I would say, now, being a geneticist and pediatricianist, I'm somewhat biased, but after the sequence of the human genome, I think it's the biggest discovery uh, within the last 20 years. How, how do we know if Bryson's disorder would be a candidate for either gene therapy or gene editing in, in particular? So I think when it comes to genome editing, there are a number of things that we still have to figure out. For example, number one, how are we going to deliver this construct in a safe and very efficient way to the target we want it to deliver? So in the case of Bryson, the question will be which cells of the brain would we have to target? Is it okay to target all cells of the brain? Do we need a very specific subtype? It makes sense that the first human trials involving CRISPR are designed to cure sickle cell anemia, a blood disorder. Blood makes for an easier target since the cardiovascular system is literally designed to rapidly churn blood throughout the body, spreading the corrected genes through veins and arteries. But the brain is a much tougher target. Even if scientists could use CRISPR to correct one part of Bryson's brain, say the hippocampus, these edited cells might not spread to other areas. And editing cells in the brain just feels riskier. One of the risks? What if the CRISPR-Cas9 enzyme cuts in the wrong place? To be honest, these, these risks are very low. But what we don't know is that if these scissors sit around in the genome for a very long time, would this change the likelihood of cutting somewhere else rather than at the intended place? And that's a really, really tricky, difficult question. And I'm not sure that there will be a set of unequivocal scientific experiments that will tell us, now you have the green light and go ahead and do it. But conceptually and theoretically speaking, most of mutations would probably be amenable to it once we figure out how to deliver it in a safe way. Jesse's death serves as a stark reminder for Laura and me. Yes, we want a cure for Bryson, but not at any cost. If and when researchers initiate clinical trials for a potential cure, we would want to be absolutely sure the treatment is safe. Bryson won't be a guinea pig. There's another teenager on my mind when I think of CRISPR's potential. David Sanchez, a teenager living with sickle cell anemia who was featured in the Human Nature documentary. 
In one poignant exchange, the film's director asks David to imagine a world where CRISPR could have been used to cure his disease before he was born. And, you know, I asked David what he thought and with no idea what he was going to say. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting to me that someone who's living with this terrible disease says, yeah, maybe I, you know, maybe I want the cure now, but I don't know that I would go back in time and eliminate it. You know, it, it, it taught me things, it formed my character, it's part of who I am. We don't know how Bryson would answer that question, but it's an important reminder to me that the idea of cure isn't always straightforward. That sometimes it's controversial. And we'll get into that in future episodes. But despite all that, Laura and I desperately want this CRISPR cure. We need to believe in it. Bryson's 16-year-old brother, Connor, he's skeptical. Well, if I'm being honest, there's so much dedicated towards the cure research for Grin 1, and so much trying to figure out how the genome could be edited, or some sort of medication that could reduce the effects to near zero. And if I'm being completely honest, I don't think that's possible within the span of my lifetime. I think that the effects could be nullified quite a bit, but I don't think that Bryson could ever live a normal life at this point in time. And I see people around me thinking that, and I guess... I guess there is a small chance that the science would be able to get there, but I don't believe it's possible because of regulations and testing. When you say people around you, you mean... Well, the Grin One research group and you, of course. You mean me and Mom mostly, right? Of course, yes. That's who you're worried about? Yeah. So you're worried that, that we're setting, us up, uh, setting ourselves up for disappointment? It's none of my business. That's why I've never really said anything about it until now. Right? Like, if you... I understand that some people need to have hope sometimes, and I'm not going to trample on that. But personally, I don't think it's going to happen. Maybe Connor's right. Because one thing we don't know is... By the time researchers figure out how to safely deliver CRISPR to the brain, well, we have missed the opportunity to unlock Bryson's. When is it too late? How much of a disease is reversible? What kind of outcome are we actually looking for? These are questions that are fascinating and important, and I, I hope I will live long enough and practice long enough to be part of these right. efforts and questions. In the meantime, we keep trying to learn as much as we can about Grin 1. We come to understand that almost every kid in our patient community has a distinct mutation. With 2,814 letters in the gene, there are thousands of opportunities for spelling errors. But somehow, miraculously, out of this tiny group of patients in the Giggling Grin 1 Facebook group, there's another patient whose DNA instructions result in an arginine where there should be a glycine at precisely the same spot as Bryson's. Bryson has a Grin 1 twin, and it's Olivia, the woman in her 20s who can walk a little and talk a little. 
There's this video of Olivia that her parents have posted on Facebook where she's got a pile of empty pizza boxes and she's tossing them onto the floor, hamming it up for the camera. So much personality. And if she can do all this and she has the exact same mutation as Bryson, then couldn't he? We learned that Olivia and her parents are traveling to Colorado for the first ever meetup of Grin One patient families. And we can't pass up the opportunity to meet Olivia and all these other Grin patients. We book flights to travel to Castle Rock, a small city half an hour's drive south of Denver. We need to meet our Grin family. And Bryson needs to meet his Grin twin. Next time on Unlocking Bryson's Brain, we meet our Grin family. Friends and family um, will say, how do you do what you do? And what do you say? I mean, are you... Are you how do you not do what we do? Boy, that little girl puts me to shame when it comes to toughness. But another health crisis pushes us to our limits. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot take on one more thing because we were barely just managing, I think, at that point. And cutting-edge research gives us new hope for a cure. It would still be worth looking for treatments even for your adult child. Oh my gosh, okay, we have to do something here because maybe science is ready for this. Unlocking Bryson's Brain is hosted and written by me, Keith MacArthur. Our associate producer is Graham McDonald, who also does our mixing and sound design. Our digital producer is Emily Canal. Chris Oak is our story editor. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Original music in this episode by Graham McDonald. Additional audio clips from Universal Studios, Ruptly News, The Mayo Clinic, Quartz Gazette, HBO, The World Science Festival, Complexly, Seeker, The Hay Lab, The Associated Press, ABC News, CNN, and C-SPAN. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer, and our executive producer is Arif Nurani. You can find bonus content for this podcast on Facebook. Find us at facebook.com slash cbcpodcasts. To learn more about grin disorders, visit curegrin.org. Do you have tips to help us unlock Bryson's brain or your own story about navigating the medical world with a rare or undiagnosed condition? We'd love to hear from you. Reach us at unlocking at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.